Yeah, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. Robert Polly, your host here at the mic. Now, uh, I don't know if you tune into this show very much. And if you don't, no hard feelings. But even if you do, you might never know from listening to it that the radio station we broadcast from is uh, just a stone's throw away, spitting distance almost, from the mighty Pacific Ocean. In fact, if you were to open up a studio window, you might hear sounds like this. And like this. Nah, I joke. That came from inside the studio. That was my guest David Helvarg doing his best impression of a California sea lion. Here, uh, for purposes of comparison, is the real thing. But uh, David's version was not so bad, I think you'll agree. After all, the guy is practically a marine mammal himself by now. He has spent a lot of his life in and around the ocean and now devotes his time to preserving it as the head of the Blue Frontier Campaign, a marine conservation organization. And he's also a longtime journalist and writer whose latest book is about the ocean. It's called The Golden Shore, California's Love Affair with the Sea. It's about the human and natural history of the California coast. And that, of course, is a subject close to home and close to the hearts of our local audience, And that seemed uh, appropriate for this edition of the show, since it fell during the station's spring pledge drive. So I invited David Helvarg into the studio to talk about the book and his life. He told me that his own love affair with the sea began when he was growing up in Long Island, and then he later moved to California in part to be next to the Pacific. As a kid, he had dreamed of a career on the water, but uh, then his journalistic interests took him elsewhere. I thought I'd be a frogman and fight for, you know, America and dolphins or a oceanographer and, and then got distracted by movements and moments of my youth, ended up being a journalist and spent the next 30 years in this kind of schizophrenic state living by the beach in California, going off to cover wars and epidemics so I could come home to go body surfing and diving. Yeah, I want to ask you about your journalism. The wars you're talking about were mostly in Central America, Yeah. Yeah, started in Northern Ireland, but spent five years covering the Central American conflicts. El Salvador, Nicaragua. And Guatemala. And Guatemala. Three really, especially Guatemala and El Salvador, really nasty conflicts. Well, and Nicaragua, 50,000 people died that summer we were there. I mean, it's... This was when the Sandinistas were fighting against Somoza, or... Correct. Okay. And and later against our funded Contras, but... Uh, and, and they were all different wars. People sort of put it together, Central America, but it, you know, kind of the elevator version is, is Nicaragua was like a textbook revolution. It was like a people rising up against one man and his private army. It was a children's crusade, and Salvador was a class war, and uh, Guatemala was a race war. I mean, so against the indigenous people. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, when I was first there, first people we stayed with in Guatemala City, and I asked them the population of Guatemala at the time, they said, Seven million, but really only three million. The rest are Indians. Mm. That, that was the army attitude. And how many uh, indigenous people, Indians, were killed during that? O- over 100,000 people, uh, almost all in the Alto Plano and the indigenous communities. And you, you met a number of people who were killed in those places. Um, most famously, maybe uh, one of the um, Catholic missionaries, uh, one of the four 
Catholic missionaries who were killed by the death squads yes, in El Salvador? Yes, Sister Edith Ford. I did the last interview with her before she was killed in uh, 1980, the night before I'd come out of a border town that the, the death squads had taken over and the the burned-out convent. They, they'd scrawled death to communist priests and nuns. And um, and Ida was kind of unique. I I spent an afternoon recording her talking at uh, at her um, center in in Chalatenango, the town of Chalatenango, and there was a wrecked jeep that was there. And she was explaining to me that uh, she and another nun had gone up into the guerrilla zone to pick up a 19-year-old government informant. The guerrillas were going to execute him, and they'd convince him to let him go. And on the way back in the rain, they'd gone over a bridge, and the jeep had fallen into the river and the other nun had been killed she said she she later told this kid you know somebody's life was lost for yours you can't sell and barter lives like they're goods and she told me she'd she'd wandered through uh the woods in the rain wondering why why god had chosen this other woman and not her and and she said she thought she'd been kept for a another purpose and of course three weeks later she and other three other church women were stopped at a roadblock and you know raped and murdered by these national guardsmen so you'd never know and they were thought to be a threat simply because they were helping the poor the poor the campesinos they were out there and and the colonel who i also interviewed in charlottenango who was implicated in their deaths he had at one point was talking about how you know their preference for the poor the catholic church was with the subversives and i'd said uh well by that definition wasn't jesus a subversive and he was like sort of, well, yes, in his time. But uh, Reagan's uh, ambassador to the UN at the time, shortly after their deaths, uh, Jean Kirkpatrick, said that uh, the nuns were activists and maybe they were running the roadblock and there may have been exchange of fire. And that was unforgivable. I mean, Ida and, and these other women were, you know, I'm not religious, but if they were going to canonize anyone, these these were kind of saintly women and very very brave and very committed and 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 a lot of people died there i mean people don't remember how much the us was involved in uh, these wars that went on relatively close to our uh, border what was that experience like for you then to be working in a place where death was all around to know some of the people who were killed and obviously i mean i think it's obvious you were probably in danger yourself yeah, I mean, we're under fire a lot. I went down there with a friend, John Hoagland, who was uh, later killed shooting for Newsweek in 84. And photographer. Photographer. I did a documentary, a John Hoagland frontline photographer, and um, made to a book with his son. Uh, after John was killed, I did was interviewing his son, Eros, who was 15 at the time, who said he look, looks at his dad's photos and thinking he'd like to do something like that someday. And I thought, yeah, poor kid, but... Of course, now he's a mid-career war photographer like his dad, and we're talking about a book, Two Faces of War, with his dad's photographs and his and the changing nature of the unchanging nature of fathers and sons and the changing nature of war photography. But John and I used to you know, go down to the beach when it just got too much and go body surfing. I'd body surf, he'd board surf, and we'd sort of, you know, the ocean would be our respite from uh, from what was going on around us. You weren't a disinterested observer of these conflicts. I mean, you had strong feelings about them. Well, I, I realized early on when I went to Northern Ireland, when I first became a journalist, um, I, I had sympathies for the Republican, the Irish Republican cause, and I had contacts with the IRA. But I quickly realized the old um, 
statement that in, in war, truth's the first casualty, that, that my sympathies didn't matter because all sides were not only willing but delighted to lie to me. Mm. And so I sort of had to develop skills as an investigative person and, and also realize that my sympathies, I'll put them up front in my reporting, but they're not going to affect my reporting. Mm -hmm. that my, my job, my cause essentially to, um, is the public's right to know. And, you know, reporters and spies are very similar. One one day in uh, Nicaragua at the height of, of the combat, you know, on the same day, we journalists were accused of being uh, CIA agents by the Sandino radio and, and uh, agents of the communist terror by uh, the Somoza radio. John put it well as a photographer. I was once interviewing him, and he said that uh, he, he says there's no such thing as objectivity. We all have a point of view. He says it's the the difference is I'm not you know I'm not going to be a propagandist. If you do something right, I'll take your picture. If you do something wrong, I'll take your picture also. And, and that's always been my my approach. I mean, in my books, I'll be very explicit where where I stand, but I'm going to be very clear on other people's positions and let them you know represent them as best I can as who they are or or what they are. Since a lot of the most interesting characters I meet tend to be thinned and uh, and flippered. <laughs> well, it does seem like you've you've spent part of your life being the journalist and part being an activist. I mean, you're currently, I think, an environmental activist, yeah? Right. I sort of recycled myself. I started out <laughs> as an activist, spent 30 years in journalism, and, and now I'm mm. back advocating for, um, although still trying to do it, you know, honestly and accurately, but advocating for, uh, you know, my remaining love, which is the ocean, the coast and the ocean. And I got there about 10 years ago. I'd, I'd written my first ocean book, Blue Frontier. And at the time, I just uh, lost somebody, life's love, and uh, didn't know what to do next. I was thinking I'd go back to war reporting because uh, this is when Bush was ginning up for the invasion of Iraq, and I knew that war was a good antidote to depression for me. And uh, then I got a call out of the blue from Ralph Nader, who'd read uh, – my book in the last chapter titled The Seaweed Rebellion about marine grassroots activists with solutions. And he asked if anybody was uh, doing anything um, about bringing, bringing these folks together and offered me a space and some initial support. And I figured we're probably always going to have wars. We're not always going to have, you know, the kind of uh, spectacular coastline and, and healthy offshore waters we have here in California. So I decided to go that way plus – I'd inherited the cat and I didn't know what to do with the cat if I went off to war. So I, mm. I sort of feel like the, you know, the poos who didn't even like getting her paws wet sort of brought me back to the ocean. And here I've been these last 10 years almost. So is activism as good a cure for depression as war reporting? Well, I think having a purpose is a good cure for depression and, and, and fear. And, and uh, certainly, you know, going with the things that, that, she loved and I love and, and that we, uh, we we can find a lot in the ocean both, you know, from adrenaline rushes to a sense of, um, of of being part of something larger than yourself even when parts of your own soul have washed off. And uh, the adrenaline's there too. I mean since, you know, since, since starting the Blue Frontier campaign, uh, the nonprofit, I've gotten to write books with the Coast Guard and gone off into hurricanes and, uh, you know – visiting the wreckage after Katrina on the Gulf Coast and then going back there a couple of years ago when the, the next predictable disaster, the BP blowout, took place. So so what's scarier, um, 
being in a hurricane or being in an ocean storm or maybe being the target for um, Salvadoran death squads. And snipers. And, and snipers. None of it's scary in the moment because there's so much adrenaline going on. Sometimes it's scary, but mostly you're just trying to get through to the next moment. Uh, but uh, but they're all very you know different life experiences. I, I think that in terms of real threats, like I said, we're always going to have wars, but we're not going to be surviving the kind of new normalcy we're facing unless we make major decisions. I, I just think what you can do is, as a war reporter, you can sort of get recognition, take good pictures, tell stories but you don't impact policy as much, I think, with our oceans. We know what the solutions are. We've got these cascading disasters, industrial overfishing for the global seafood market. We've got you know, oil and plastic and chemical and nutrient pollution of coastal seas and, and uh, coastal sprawl, loss of habitat. And on top of all that, fossil fuel-fired climate change. We mostly know what the solutions are. It's getting the political will to enact them. And I think that's uh, that's a challenge that can be met probably more easily than than the way that we've hardwired ourselves for war and conflict. Um, I, I even think that there are some solutions there. In writing about the Coast Guard, I realized that war historically has been we choose our young men to go off, and those who survive tend to become the leaders of our, our tribes and, and nations. But um, the world's different today. It's more crowded and more interdependent, and and the challenge are, challenges aren't just other guys with guns. They're, you know, industrial and accidental and intentional disasters mm -hmm. on a planet that's two thirds salt water. So to me, you know, like the young women and men of the Coast Guard who go in harm's way, uh, a great way to direct sort of youthful energy in a more productive way than straight out warfare. You know, taking the side of the ocean seems like um, a pretty easy way to go. It would be a lot more daring and contrarian to be opposed to the ocean, don't you think? Oh, I think there, there, there are enough people who are effectively opposed to the ocean. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been on some of their oil rigs, and I've been in some of their hearing rooms. Uh, you reminded me that you actually got involved in another, um, well, I won't say attack on the ocean, but the um, infamous SpongeBob case. This is where uh, James Dobson, the head of Focus on the Family, the uh, evangelical conservative organization, actually accused – I don't know if he was serious. Was he serious when he accused SpongeBob of being gay? Uh, prom well, he accused, I think, SpongeBob's buddy uh, of, of you know, promoting the homosexual agenda, and I just you know, wrote a response that, that the good reverend didn't appreciate um, – First of all, sponge or ha hermaphrodites, so they, they don't have preferences. <laughs> but he didn't appreciate the variety of uh, sexually reproductive strategies that exist in the ocean from, uh, you know, transgender fish. I mean, it's, it's, it's like uh, the anemone fish, the clownfish. If Nemo's mom had actually been eaten by that barracuda, then within three days his dad would have converted to become his new mom. But I don't think Disney was quite ready to handle handle that. But, but I said the real, you know, the real sin is is that we're we're taking down this amazing diversity of life with all its sexual and uh, reproductive strategies and forms, you know, and uh, you know that uh, that we just sort of have to have to chill a bit and and appreciate all that we don't understand, you mm -hmm. know, kind of we don't even know what we don't know. 
Uh, yeah, uh, as you say, the, the the reproductive strategies in the ocean among uh, invertebrates and vertebrates are quite uh, various, from asexual reproduction, you know, sponges just budding off or breaking off pieces of themselves that become new sponges, or fish that change gender, or hermaphroditic species. Or isn't there a fish where the male essentially merges with the larger female and becomes simply a lump, a lump on the female? Yeah, she's very large, and he's a parasitic attachment. Exactly. That, and, and <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to be controversial in Monterey Bay, but, you know, also let's, let's get serious about sea otters. They're voracious marine weasels into rough sex. Oh, yeah? yeah the, come the, on, come on, tell us. Tell the us. male will bite down on the female's nose. His paws are too short to get a good grip, so... Um, he bites down on her nose for a little splendor in the kelp, and you'll see up on the rocks all these bloody-nosed females hauled out. Um, obviously, uh, you know, the, the Monterey Bay Aquarium even had to do a rhinoplasty on one female whose whole nose leather had been half-ripped off by a, a aggressive male. And I suppose, you know, a female with a heavily scarred nose leather might get a reputation as an easy otter. But, <laughs> but I, I figure we owe these weasels big time anyway because we almost wiped them out and 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 they're the top predator of the kelp forest they're you know the the sea otters to the kelp forest what the wolf is to the land forest to the shark to the coral reef you know when when there were only a few remaining rafts down in in big sur and people thought we'd exterminated them all and when they were finally recognized protected and they made it around the bend into monterey there was no kelp forest here. It was all uh, urchin barrens. But because they're such voracious eaters, they ate through all the abalones and barrens that were killing off the uh, holdfast, the roots of the kelp. The forest came back, and with the forest came all the diversity that kelp forests hold. It's, uh, along with coral reefs, one of the most diverse and interesting places to be. Now, now you keep calling sea otters weasels. Don't you want to exploit the human instinct for cuteness? which surely is in the, the otter's favor. I mean, it just technically, accurately, it's a marine weasel. That doesn't make it any less cute when we look at it. It's, it's you know, we, we may know that when it's rubbing itself, it's not really, you know, it's it's actually trying to keep uh, keep air, and it's it's got these fine fur, 60,000 hairs per square inch. And so what it's really doing is like going, my God, I got I to gotta keep rushing or I get for cold. For buoyancy. Oh, for warmth and buoyancy. Yeah. Warmth and buoyancy. Uh -huh. And it looks real cute, but no, it's not. They're not petting themselves, congratulatory. Well, get out of here. Come on. I, I remember <laughs> I, I was at the, uh, because I'm that old, I, I was at the uh, founding ceremonies for the Monterey National Marine Sanctuary back in 92, and I remember... The uh, lifeguards had taken longboards and paddled across in the fog in the morning to Monterey, and there was this big crowd there. The Monterey Symphony was playing Ode to the Common Man, and then there was uh, tall ships and the Coast Guard cutters and kayakers, and in between the kayakers were all these sea lions leaping about, and the kayakers looking very nervous. And this tourist couple next to me, she turns to her husband. She goes, how'd they get them to do that? <laughs> so I think people are going to find find our wildlife cute no matter what the facts about what they're actually doing or who they actually are. You like all species equally, yeah? No, somebody actually asked me the other day <laughs> what was my favorite iconic uh, California critter, you know, with the gray whales and the dolphins and the otters. And I have to say it's it's the California sea lion, all 300,000 of them, because they're large, loud, rowdy, kind of filthy. They're so much like us. <laughs> can you explain why they're so audible at such great distances? I mean, here in Santa Cruz, we can hear them miles inland some nights. 
you know, or, 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 you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, you, you probably have more on acoustics. The range is certainly there. Um, and, and the young males are certainly, you know, they're, they're like when, when Canada geese fly overhead, they're always like, hey, I'm flying. Arr, arr. Mm. That wasn't a good goose, but <laughs> we can all do, we can all do sea lion bark because we've heard it let's so hear much. It, let's hear it. What, sea lion? Yeah. Arr, 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 arr. That's good because they do have that kind of deepening and then kind of sometimes choking ending to that, you know. Right, and and they're uh, you know, and they incredible congregations. I mean, they call a congregation of sea lions a mob. Mm. So uh, you know, mm. they have that mob like behavior. Mm-hmm. But it's it's an amazing story that we killed off most of our pinnipeds and whales, and uh, after we sort of serially killed the whales and chased them to their breeding lagoons in Baja. Then they started killing the elephant seals for their blubber and oil. And at one point, they were down to 20 to 100 of them in uh, Guadalupe Island down in Baja. Late 1800s, Smithsonian Expedition goes down there, spots 10 of them, and shoots seven for specimens to take back to the museum. But, but over time, when we there's tremendous resiliency in, in the northern Pacific off California with the California current and the upwellings and once we made the right decisions uh, nationally and at state level for with the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Clean Water Act and local initiatives, um, you know, like banning gill nets off Southern California, like the White Shark Protection Act, we've seen this tremendous comeback. I mean, today we have I, I have a whole chapter in my new book called uh, Return of the Beast. We've got thirty thousand harbor seals, three hundred thousand uh, sea lions. And, and I was just down by Hearst Castle where there's an elephant seal beach, a new elephant seal beach. There are now about a dozen up and down the state. And this one, the first elephant seal hauled up there in 1990. And 1992 was the first breeding pair. Today, there's 17,000 of them that return to that beach to molt and to breed. So you're not a pessimist. I'm not a pessimist. I'm not an optimist, really. I'm, I'm just saying that we know what the solutions are to the world's problems to to our blue world's problems we what we need is the political will to enact those solutions and you've and seen as you say you've seen ecosystems come back from the brink of destruction i think what we've done in california from essentially having a rapacious exploitation of resources killing off the wildlife over developing the shoreline and we've done a turnaround in california i think today is a model for coastal and ocean protection and it's a model at a scale that does give me some hope. I mean, we're the most populous state in the nation. We're the world's eighth largest economy. If we can do a turnaround on our oceans and coasts and, and come to an understanding that healthy oceans mean healthy lifestyles, healthy economy, a healthy way of, of being, then um, then there is some hope. I'm not saying that we're going to turn the tide in time to uh, you know, save our blue marble planet. All I'm saying is if we don't try, we lose. And the effort that's been made here in California holds promise that, that we can, in fact, scale, scale things up in time to make a difference. And we will return to today's interview with journalist and environmental activist David Helvarg in just a moment. Now let's get back to today's interview with David Helvarg. His most recent book is The Golden Shore, California's Love Affair with the Sea. When did the California mystique begin? 
Did it begin with the Spanish? Did it begin with the crazy name California, which has an interesting history that you can tell us very briefly? Yeah, it was uh, California was you know this this princess who wrote, wrote a or queen really Queen Khalifa who wrote a a griffin <laughs> to battle against the Turks in a in a Spanish novel of the 1500s and and uh, her land was this distant mysterious land of Amazons and when they got to California they thought it was an island they named it after her and and even though it turned out not to be an island it's uh it's certainly its history its maritime history is much closer to island states like Australia or Japan or Great Britain than than it is to Illinois say so the, the Spanish, in fact, it was Cortez himself, Hernan Cortez, right, the conquistador, yeah. who took this character from a novel <laughs> and named what was actually Baja California uh, after her. Um, so when did the mystique begin? Was it Richard Henry Dana in 18, was it 20 or was 1830s it? 1830s. 1830s. For, for his book was certainly the, you know, created the mystique of California. And then, of course, it continues because – well, particularly on Southern California, where we have the wide sandy beaches and low marine terraces and lots of population, um, three major industries in Southern California are, are military, maritime, and fantasy. <laughs> and so Hollywood has, you know, given us Gidget and and the Endless Summer and Baywatch and the OC, and and so you have sort of have this myth of California that's part true. Not quite. I'm I'm from the Bay Area, uh, although I did my ten years, my lost endless summer in San Diego. But mm. uh, but you know you have people who earn their livings. The vendors around Pier 39, San Francisco, selling hoodies and sweatshirts to tourists who think that uh, California is just a long extension of Malibu Barbie's beach house. Mm. And in fact, when you when you go around uh, Point Conception. Uh, you're no longer in the Southern Bight. You're in the North Pacific, you know, one of the roughest ocean fetches in the world. Mm. You know, your book is called uh, The Golden Shore, but the subtitle is California's Love Affair with the Sea. I'm kind of curious to know about the, the history of that particular love of the sea. Beach going, for instance. I think you say in your book that beach going uh, as a leisure activity dates back to the late 1800s. Late 1800s. Why was that? Why did that come about? And what is it about the beach anyway? Well, it was the expansion. I mean, California's, uh, you know, four railroad barons were building rail lines and, and uh, those rail lines were going down to the shore. They were – they created, you know, nationwide propaganda, I guess. Sunset Magazine was created, you know, for to get railroad passengers out to California to settle in the Southland mainly. And part of the attraction of the Southland was these wide sandy beaches. So by the 1880s – Local oligarchs like John Spreckles in uh, San Diego had bought up the Hotel Del Coronado that was the largest resort in the world at the time along the Silver Strand. And in uh, He was a sugar baron. He was a sugar baron. He was, you know, based son of a sugar baron, really, and ah. based in San Francisco until the 1906 earthquake. And that night he loaded his family on the Lorleen, his yacht, and sailed it down to San Diego where oh. he took over. Never returning north to the uh, San Andreas, and 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 <laughs> by late in the century, there were these fabulous, you know, the Cliff House in San Francisco and the Hotel Redondo in Los Angeles, o along with just tent cities by the beach and and Wonderlands kind of beach amusements like the Santa Cruz Boardwalk, and and they they saw there was a new economy in in beach leisure. Of course, nobody knew how to swim, and so one weekend in Newport Beach, eighteen people drowned, and they started hiring. 
ex-cops and, and off-duty cops as tagmen where you'd go in and literally grab them by their, their swimwear, their tops, and tag or tag them, drag them back out. But Wait, wait, it, wait, wait. Tag them? Tag them? They, they'd call them tagmen because you'd have – they'd run into the water when somebody was drowning. They'd try and grab or tag them. Oh, I see what And you drag mean. them back out. But yeah. these people didn't know what they were doing. The only people who knew what they were doing in the water were surfers. And Jack London had sort of introduced surfing to uh, America and California. Uh, he'd given a, a letter of recommendation to George Frey who came here in uh, the early part of the early 1900s. He was hired by uh, Henry Huntington who owned the Hotel um, Redondo to do exhibition surfing in front of that hotel. And he also did his headstands and other surfing exhibitions in front of the uh, competition at Venice Beach. Thousands of people turned out. Hundreds of young men, because it was mostly a young man's sport at the time, learned how to surf from George and later the Duke who came over. Duke Hanamoku from and, Hawaii. But and George uh, died in 1990 during the uh, flu influenza. But by then he trained all these young guys who became the sort of core of the surfing clubs of the 1930s. And the surfers became the, the lifeguards, the more professional lifeguards that that helped save people and helped prevent people, helped keep the tourists coming to to the shoreline up and down much of California's coast. So what what is it that attracts people? I mean, this may seem like the dumbest question you've ever been asked, but why is the beach such a magnet for people? What is it that our species gets out of hanging around on this sandy strip right next to water? You know, it's it's our bodies are 70% salt water, just <laughs> like the planet. It's this mystical connection for some of us. I, it's that first experience as a little kid. You know, you go, you sort of, the universe is around you, and suddenly you're plopped in front of a wave, and it knocks you over, and you l get up and look around, and you realize you're part of something bigger than yourself. It goes to the horizon, this open vista. And I don't know what, you know, it's it's that feeling like the good old days in the here and now when you drop a blanket on the beach, you know, and. It, it's a very basic calling, and some people some people like the mountains, some people like the sea, but I think all of us have that connection with the sea. Our blood is literally as salty as the sea was at the time we crawled out of it. And, um, you know, I, I lived seven years in a cliff house in San Diego. It was 60 feet above the ocean, and the uh, the waves used to shake us during storms at night, and I never slept better in my life. It's like your mother's heartbeat. You know, we're we're out of salt water at an individual and evolutionary basis, and and sort of my cause is you know that we stop being abusive to our mom or to her womb. Yeah, <laughs> our um, womb. It's, it's, our it's, womb. It's, this is where life started on our planet, and and that may be the attraction. This is the crucible. This is like both the Bula base and the bowl it's served in. You write that California's shoreline, and I'm quoting you now, is where U.S. westward expansion ended, but the promise never did. And, you know, here in Santa Cruz, I've been here long enough. I, by the way, I'm from the interior of the country originally, but I'm yet another person, I guess, drawn to the coast. Um, you, you see people come with the vague idea that being near the ocean is going to deliver them, you know, that it's going to be a kind of salvation, turn their life around. Maybe something will happen here that didn't happen for them elsewhere. And there's good and bad in that. You do see a dark side also. I mean, we may love the ocean. The ocean doesn't love us. The ocean is... A very dangerous frontier. It's it's a liquid, unbreathable, corrosive medium that's constantly changing. In California, it's a, you know steep slopes create sleeper waves that literally drag people out to sea into their deaths. It's a it's full of biologicals, including large 
gray-white fish that, you know, occasionally munch us, mistaking us for seals. And and it's, a, you know, just as the ocean is dangerous, there's there's a dark side to being in the impact zone, to living on the edge of something that's that's as disinterested in our human foibles. It can provide everything from adrenaline to solace, but it's it's got its dark side. El Nino storms are, you know, I mean, I remember trying to get out of San Diego. My friend was trying to sell a sailboat and we're out during the storms. We got tired of waiting and, you know, we're five miles offshore and it's mud brown from all the runoff and ladders and barrels passing us and ballistic rain in our face. And we finally turn around. It took us, you know, six hours to beat up from uh, Mission Bay to off Del Mar. We turned around and, you know, less than an hour, we're literally surfing the, uh, you know, the entry into the bay. Um, and that was that was a winter that, you know, took out a lot of homes and a lot of lives. And, and with climate change, we may see more more winter storms like that, more frequent El Ninos, sea level rise. The challenges are, are certainly going to be huge. I think that California is at least beginning to address the challenges that that will come with the coastal impacts from climate. Let's go there. Um, if, and there's every sign that this will happen, if the Earth's climate continues to get a lot warmer, even if we capped our greenhouse gas emissions today, it would continue to get warmer for quite a while because of a delayed reaction. Hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Great, great. So it's going to get warmer. Uh, sea level is going to rise as polar ice melts. And it's going to rise by a matter of feet or more, right? At least three to six feet so, along the California coast this century. So tell me what the California coastline might look like in 50 or 100 years. Well, we're already seeing a lot of erosion. We've seen in Orange County a major highway collapsed. Uh, Pacifica is a regular scene of, of cliff houses going. Um, it can either be a disaster zone or it can be a more carefully planned retreat. In the Bay Area, for example, San Francisco is looking at the Great Highway, which has been flooding every winter for three years now. This is the coastal road. The coastal road that leads from the Cliff House south. Mm -hmm. And um, the planning right now, they're they're trying to pump sand and put in boulders, but the planning is to move it inland. And, you know, the temptations to harden this coast, which doesn't really work because you build a seawall and the sea gets its way under and around it. But that's that's certainly if you've got a clifftop condo or mansion, that's your first instinct is armor it. But the the reality is we have to you know begin to plan with the recognition of expanded flood zones and storms. So in, uh, in the South Bay in San Francisco, uh, major restoration of wetlands that will protect not only the uh, the office parks for Google and Facebook, but a couple of low income Hispanic communities that are down there. And we have the mechanisms between the Coastal Commission, which requires new planning every ten years. That planning can require that that uh, adaptation for for sea level rise and, and expanded floodplains be incorporated. Eventually, state revenue sharing to localities, to municipalities and counties will be dependent on having good planning for what we know is coming. Do you think human beings can actually hold the line against those things and keep um, California coastal communities pretty much as they are today, or are they going to have to retreat? <laughs> they have to move, relocate, you know? Are some towns going to be non-existent? I, I think things change. I, I open uh, my book describing a paleo-Indian party going out to hunt uh, marine mammals 30 miles 
past a, a river valley, the today San Francisco Bay, and that beach they hunted on is beyond the Farallon Islands today because this was before the last glacial melting when sea level was 350 feet lower. Um, the fact is it's going to rise, and it's in some ways tougher here. I mean, in places like Bangladesh, um, there's seasonal flooding, and the people retreat. Uh, here we have the problem of infrastructure. We've built up our coast to the degree that we have um, power plants and sewage plants and, and sewer lines and storm drains as well as billions of dollars of, of uh, real estate up and down the coast. Now, luckily, it's not totally up and down the coast. Had we, had we not voted for a coastal commission in the 1970s, then, then much of the coastline would look much more developed, much more like Waikiki or the Jersey Shore. Let's stop right there because we do have this um, governmental body called the Coastal Commission here in California that's really unusual uh, if you look at the other states. And it has tremendous power. It has shaped, as you say, a lot of the environmental policy along the California coast ever since it was voted in, what was the year again? 1972. 1972. It is the bane of some developers and some commercial interests um, and other people who found that the Coastal Commission has pretty much nixed their plans. Yeah. And on the other hand, it is definitely uh, you know treasured by the environmental community um, because it has this amazing power. Tell us what this commission is and how it works. I, I think it's treasured by most Californians because along with, with uh, stopping um, – reckless development up and down the coast. It's also, its its founding purpose was also to guarantee public access to the coast. And all you have to do is take a trip east to the Jersey Shore or to Connecticut, and you realize you have to pay to get to the beach, or, you, or you've got, you know, these, these seawalls that literally prevent you unless you're one of the private property owners from having access to your co own coastline. Um, it, it started, well, it really started back when California would develop the first offshore oil on piers off Summerlin in Southern California, and the blowouts and the waste was such that Santa Barbara didn't want them, and it took the government 65 years to convince Santa Barbarans that the technology had improved, which it hadn't. Uh, and then they had the big spill in 69? 69 was the big oil spill, and yeah. the same year that the, the Cuyahoga River caught fire in Cleveland. And that really was the, the birth of the modern environmental movement. Three years later, the people of California, which had been carrying out this kind of guerrilla warfare with developers up and down the state, farmers and co local coastal communities and environmentalists fighting development one, one mega plan at a time, um, voted for this coastal commission. They voted for it because the state house was too corrupt to pass it. But, you know, a few years, four years after we voted it as an initiative, it became the law, it became the Coastal Act. And you look at the effects that continue with the Coastal Commission in the 1990s, when the military, when the army pulled out of Fort Ord, anywhere else in the United States, that would have immediately gone to private development. You'd have a multi-billion dollar gated community. Um, but because of the existence of the Coastal Commission, they negotiated the sale to the state. And now this is part of our state park uh, system that's, that's uh, you know, with the coastal trail. And anybody can go walk those seven miles of, of beach line. So the Coastal Commission, uh, again, this body that was voted in and, and seems to have the final say a lot of the time about development decisions along the coast, uh, right, uh, has had an enormous impact. But it has been under the gun a lot, of course, as you can imagine, over the years. Do you think it'll hang in there and, and continue to function the way it has for the last 40 years? I think ultimately the Coastal Commission works because the people of California want it to work. So even though 
it's been squeezed and it's it's gone from like 240 staff members to around 130 today, um, squeezed by government and squeezed by special interest. But as long as the people of California like their coastline and like it protected, I think the Coastal Commission will endure. So you are a body surfer um, still? Oh, yeah. Still I, I love body surfing whenever I can get in the water and, and bodyboarding and kayaking and, of course, diving. I mean, you know, it's... One's a great source of adrenaline, and diving's a great source of just sort of relaxed wonder. Basically, I can turn off my mind when I'm in the ocean. But don't turn it off here, okay? Uh, what? No. <laughs> Dude, I'm with you. <laughs> now, you don't need to explain this for our local audience, but we have an audience beyond this, this region. Describe why people change their entire life in order to surf. I mean, it's such a powerful experience that people will change their entire life in order to do it more often. Can you explain it to some, someone who's experienced it? Yeah. In my book, in the chapter on surfing, I end it with my friend Charlie because it's it's not about George Frey or the big wave surfers at Mavericks. They're, they're the high end, but it's it's hundreds of thousands, if not several million Californians who just – he says it's it's where we get to dance with nature and and the ocean it's it's interactive you know that that sort of that flow and rush in some ways it's it's a very self-interested opportunity to have this this awesome rush and at the same time um it's it's the most uh, renewable form of ocean usage you know non non-destructive i i remember as uh i was young i was shy i was new to san diego I was body surfing next to this girl who I was interested in and she was on a board and we caught the same wave and just, you know, had this incredible rush and she pops up next to me and goes, isn't it great when you come together? <laughs> oh, there is an explanation for you. Um, as you said, the, and I didn't even realize this, that the guy who sort of helped popularize surfing way back around the turn of the previous century right? was mm -hmm. Jack London. And in some ways, an archetypal Californian, right? Grew up in the Bay Area. London did. He was an oyster pirate on the Bay, and because they couldn't catch him, the uh, the oyster patrol hired him on as one of theirs. He he shipped out on a on a whaling ship, and um, he was a water guy, And uh, but he also wrote about Alaska and dogs. And, and when he, he had his bestseller, he went with his wife on the snark to Hawaii, and he went to Waikiki, saw surfers, and he was he got to stand up on a board and he was just awestruck. Mm -hmm. He he just started writing about surfers like he wrote about smart dogs. <laughs> and he wrote for the Women's Home Companion an article. It was the first popular article about surfing in the United States. And then he wrote letters of recommendation, including George Frey, who's sort of credited with bringing surfing to California. So you know, um, Jack London kind of discovered and popularized surfing. He was a kind of adventuresome guy like Teddy Roosevelt, the president at the time. He, br he brought it back to California and, uh, and it got, you know, so popular that now some people are sort of peyote him for popularizing <laughs> it. But he was also the son of a mother who was a spiritualist and a father who may have been an astrologer, which seems very Californian to me, even though they weren't from California. Yeah. You know, and, and people like to say, Oh, California's old wah wah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, what we really are is we make the connection between the natural world and our work. And I think that that our whole sense of exploration and adventure and spiritualism and entrepreneurship are tied into the Pacific. 
you know, that, that sense that if you catch the next wave, you're sitting on top of the world. That's, that's really, uh, you know, without the Pacific, we're just a long skinny clone of Nevada and we don't have that, that connection that we work hard and we play hard here. And when we play hard, it's generally that we have the world's largest trees and the most spectacular granite mountains and some really hot, lively deserts. Uh, it's really the ocean that defines us. And it gives us a spiritual connection to the natural world, which is mostly salt water. And it's popular for people who are envious to talk about the late great state of California and how we're in a state of decline. But, you know, when it comes to managing and living well by the largest ecosystem on, on the planet, which is our ocean, our world ocean, California is leading the way. You grew up in Long Island, as you said. Uh, and moved out here when you were 21. So at what point in your life did you start saying, we Californians? Well, my friends who were raised here say, you New Yorkers. But I think <laughs> after after I'd lived more than half my life here, I started seeing myself as a Californian. And, and just to prove I'm not smart, I moved back to D.C. for almost nine years, moved from Sausalito of all places, and realized eastern crowded eastern seaboard wasn't working for me anymore, that I really was a Californian, had to get back here. And when I got back here, I had to celebrate, and, and this book is sort of, as I say, an investigative love letter using my journalistic skills as an excuse to see all the places I've been to or wanted to get to in California and share them with uh, not just with other Californians but with anybody who's interested in uh, how we live on an ocean planet in rough times. And the book is The Golden Shore, California's Love Affair with the Sea, but it might have been titled My Love Affair with the Sea. I try and be journalistic. I tell a lot of stories about people who aren't me, and I met a lot of amazing folks in the course of writing this book and want to share stories of, of the people I admire, the water men and women, like uh, whether it's Richard Henry Dana 150 years ago or Geraldine Natz, who's executive director of the Port of Los Angeles today, or um, or Bruce Robison, who's an ex explorer and scientist right at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute who describes, you know, turning off lights 1,500 feet down alone in a submersible and seeing a whole world of light all around him, which is the living light of the ocean um, on Monterey Bay, which is one of the most spectacular places on earth that you get to live in. Hey, you're right. I think I'm going to go to the beach after this. <laughs> Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Robert. Uh, that is Waterman David Helvarg. Can I call you that? I'd be honored. David Helvarg is the founder and president of the Blue Frontier Campaign and is the author of The Golden Shore. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. We are online at 7thAvenueProject.com. Bottom of the sea